0: Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow. Today, I welcome back a friend of the show, Shannon Applecline, the author of Designers and Dragons, which contains the foundational history of role-playing games and currently has four volumes for the seventies, eighties, nineties, and two thousands. Shannon's comprehensive series has a special place on my bookshelf and is my go-to for historical reference. Shannon is once again joining us for the third year in a row to share his thoughts on the events of the past year and how it fits in within the broader context of the history of role-playing games. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It's been quite a year. Yeah, it has been a year. And uh, literally, literally uh, when we recorded it and we posted it literally two hours after I posted it on YouTube, the OGL license fiasco happened. And uh, I know that's going to weigh heavy on our review t- uh, of the past year events, but hopefully they don't do that again to us this year as far as like it kind of made some of what we were saying irrelevant, but uh, you guess, I guess you never know with uh, Wizards of the Coast.
1: Yeah. I think when we were talking last year, we were still hearing rumors that something might be going on. And we said, ah, I'm sure it couldn't be as bad as people
0: are making out. And
1: it was. Worse. And,
0: and if you lived under a rock, uh, Shanna, just kind of do a recap on how bad of a situation that ended up being.
1: Well, uh, back in
0: 2000,
1: of course, the uh, Wizards of the Coast, Ryan Dancy, offered the OGL, the Open Game License, and said, hey, uh, we don't think D&D is as popular as it could be. We would like the support of third-party publishers to produce games of your own uh, supplements of your own are really what they were hoping for. Um, before that producing supplements for D and D was kind of the wild west. Uh, there is a wide understanding of intellectual property law that games are not controllable by IP except with patents, which are very expensive and hard to get. And as long as you could use your trademarks, their trademarks carefully, you could use the game systems. And so we saw all the way back to the 80s, Mayfair was making supplements. Uh, In the 90s, Kinzer and Company were uh, notably both of those companies were founded by lawyers. And so they actually had a better understanding of how to be careful about the IP. But if you were a random company who really wanted to support Dungeons and Dragons, you were kind of putting your company at risk by doing so because you never knew if you might just step over that line. You never knew if. TSR, especially back before Wizards of the Coast got a hold of it, if they might suddenly take a dislike to you and sue you for reasons that weren't necessarily that great, like happened with GDW and uh, Gary, Gex's, Gary Gygax's second company, New Infinities. So in 2000, Ryan Dancy and Wizards of the Coast and Peter Atkison and everyone said, we want to remove that um, question. We want to remove that uncertainty. We want to make it easy to supplement uh dungeons and dragons and more recently as, as we'll get to momentarily people have made this out as a great gift that wizards of the coast gave to the industry and that was not what they were doing they were very specifically and self-centeredly saying how can we make dungeons and dragons more popular uh ryan actually said you know we're trying to make D the only game in the industry we you know want to make it so that People aren't interested in other games. Um, So that was the OGL. That was 2000. Uh, There was a huge boom in D&D that was in large respect because of that. Um, And it it was very successful until 3.5 came out and it all crashed. But it was what brought Dungeons & Dragons back at least as much as Wizards of the Coast buying it from TSR. So you jump forward through the 20 years since uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast kind of didn't really support the OGL during the 4E era, era. they put out the GSL instead, which was much more limited. But 5E came back and they uh, put the rules into uh, the OGL via a system resource document, system reference document, um, SRD. And uh, that's how it's been since 2014. So... Start of this year, we'd been hearing the rumors, as we said, and uh, Wizards of the Coast suddenly started saying that they were going to essentially revoke the OGL. And this was a big, big surprise to everyone because when it was offered in 2000, uh, they said, Build your company upon this. We are building the OGL such that we can never take it away from you. You can have total faith that it will be there. Um, that may or may not be the case. Uh, several people in looking at the OGL more carefully when when Wizards said, started trying to revoke it said, you know, actually it doesn't have some magic legal words in there about permanency that need to be in there. Uh, and there was also a question of what was an authorized version of the OGL. And that seemed to be what Wizards of the Coast was hanging their hat on. They they were going to deauthorize the the previous versions and only have a new version authorized and as we got deeper and deeper into this over the course of January it became o- obvious that the new version was going to give them the ability to censor material from third parties possibly after it had already been printed which would mean that third parties would have to destroy books which would just be ruinous in the role playing industry and that they were going to demand royalties from people who were making, mm, I forget, a million dollars a year, it was some fairly high numbers, there's there's a threshold, but uh, yeah, and not everybody would be affected. Yeah, it was something that at least a dozen companies would be affected by. And that royalty was going to be 25%, which, uh, again, ruinous in the role playing industry that that no one could have afforded that. Um, This caused some discontent uh, both because wizard's coast was going back on their word because they were widely seen as trying to manipulate uh, their legal contracts in ways that were not ethical because they were going back on their word and because they seemed to have a really bad misunderstanding of what the role-playing industry was i mean thinking that things like a 25 percent royalty not that it would fly, but it would be affordable, that it would be something that people could actually pay without going business, out of business, that people would be okay with having their creative work censored. Uh, And so that was basically what we were hit with in uh, early January.
0: So looking back upon that, like I work in corporate communications and, and and that kind of thing. And I know when you want to put something out that kind of like flies under the radar, you put it out on a Friday or during the Christmas busy season. And uh, so you can, you know, cover your ass, so to speak. And you go, oh, well, we said something and here it is. But uh, do you think that they were expecting the backlash that they got? Or did you think that people would just kind of go, well, that's, that's the way it is? Uh, I think they were clearly
1: not under, expecting the backlash. Uh, they'd apparently already talked with some of their uh, biggest uh, people who were involved with making supplements. Um, they had put out uh, contracts and tried to get them signed as far as we can tell. Uh, they clearly thought, hey, we've covered our bases. Like I said, I think a large part of the problem was that they do not understand the industry, the people who were making the decisions. Uh, we have since heard that people in design development, the ones actually hands-on uh, with role-playing, who do understand the industry, that they were telling them, "No, no, 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 no. This, this is not going to go well." Um, I, I think clearly the backlash was not expected, especially not to the degree. And we saw that because a couple of different times over the very long month of January, there were notably long delays and them putting out a um announcement our news it getting torn apart by the industry and then them sitting on a reply for you know seems like forever but was probably a week or so that says they weren't ready they didn't know how to respond it was they were not getting the response they expected
0: and is this history repeating itself from the uh, tsr days where basically uh, corporate folks took over the gaming component of the uh, tsr franchise or uh, company probably Uh, it's a little hard to say from the outside
1: all you can really see are the evidence of what happened um certainly from the tsr days we heard that there was a large division between corporate and design uh that corporate looked down on design that design did not like corporate Uh, we heard that lorraine williams did not like gamers i don't know how much of this is actually any more than second hand but but it's been second handed so many times that you have to start to believe it um and i certainly haven't heard that people in corporate at wizards of the coast don't like gamers they just don't seem to have much interaction with them
0: and this is uh looking back upon the industry over time and i know you've talked about Uh, Sometimes there's very creative people that really don't understand the business side of things. So they create like interesting products and then they eventually just can't uh, sustain it. But then you also have these kind of situations where um, they have business people that don't understand the creative part and they put themselves into a corner uh, and to their own disadvantage because they just don't understand the hobby or the industry. I think
1: that's a really fair way to look at it. There have been so many companies that have crashed because the creatives were running things and and they didn't know how to i mean i used to work at chaosium and you know we had good accountants but the people running the company were the creators at the company and they weren't always the best people to do it i mean casium essentially well they were at least bought out after uh, after i worked for them and so they were pretty close to out of business um so yeah we kind of need those suits managers to have successful businesses, but then we do also run to this other problem. But but I think that's a really good way of looking at, hey, it's not all bad. It's not great the other way either.
0: And so basically what happened is you had a whole bunch of, um, I guess we, what you'd call maybe influencers, whether on YouTube, uh, primarily that were like really pushing back against the OGL uh there is like grassroots movements to cancel uh D &D beyond subscriptions and uh just between all that bad pr and the subscriptions and they were actually hitting their bottom line uh wizards of the coast and they finally did the mea culpa and they put the um five e into uh creative commons
1: yeah i'm not sure how much of a mea culpa i'd call it uh i mean Certainly, uh, the, the, the current head of DND, Kyle Brinks, uh, he offered some apologies, but it never entirely felt to me that they were admitting everything. They were still saying things like, we never intended that to be a contract, the thing that they sent out for uh, um, signing from people. But I, I guess that's beside the point. Yes, they put uh, d and into the creative commons, Uh, there was a lot of speculation of, oh, it's going to be irrelevant because the new version out at the 50th anniversary is going to be incompatible. And that seems to have been totally unfounded. Uh, we've been getting previews of the D and D books at, at PAX this year. They look really cool, the 50th anniversary ones, and they're still holding with them being totally compatible. So I think them putting D and D into the creative commons is still very meaningful.
0: And th- that wasn't their only kind of miscue on the year. It just kind of seemed like it just it was not <laughs> not their year. And so they had uh, a disastrous creator summit um, with a lot of the YouTube influencers uh, that I mentioned earlier, and that didn't really go over that well. Yeah, they seemed to be trying
1: to use it. It was in March or April to to try and paper over their problems that had happened with the OGL, and uh, I heard multiple people say that they felt like they were being used just as props. And uh, after you know the second or third droning info commercial from Wizards, the uh, uh, influencer started asking some uh, very pointed questions, not just about the OGL, but about diversity at Wizards of the Coast and other uh, problems that have been ongoing for the last couple of years. And uh, they turned it around and uh, I don't think it was what Wizards expected.
0: And then, uh, they also had, a uh, uh, brouhaha over the, the Pinkertons going to somebody that received some, uh, magic, the gathering cards by mistake, yeah. apparently. Yeah. Huh. Maybe by mistake, it's never actually been
1: explained how he got them. But, but the point is that wizards of the coast thought it was appropriate to use an extra legal police force. You know, the kind of thing that you use to coerce and intimidate people when you are rich and are powerful to get back some cards that had already had a video made of it. It, I mean, I think in the modern day hiring the Pinkertons should practically be disqualifying. You should understand that, uh, they have not been good people. They are not good people. Extra legal police forces are not good things. And the fact that a toy company thinks that they need an extra legal police force is very, very disturbing it. I mean, though gl had the the possibility of destroying a good chunk of the industry so that was a big big deal but using the pinkertons any other year would have been I, I would think catastrophic pr wise especially since people who were afraid to reveal their names for fear of retribution said wizards has been using the Pinkertons since at least 2017
0: and these are the types of guys that they're like you see in the movies right they show up maybe in dark suits muscular <laughs> and they are intimidating they don't say who they are they're just like there to basically uh, showcase the force that could be falling upon you if you don't uh, come to their terms yeah they
1: were telling uh, this youtube influencer that he was gonna be sued for two hundred thousand dollars fined i think not even sued that you know he could end up in jail, blah blah blah, and you know they basically force their way into homes with things like that. They force people to give them stuff. You know, if this guy had had a lawyer standing next to him, the lawyer would have laughed and told the pinkers tents to go away. But they depend on you know, threat, fear, um, uncertainty. They not not good people, not not a good type of people. Uh, I mean, they're not the people who were murdering strikers in the 1800s, but they're they're the descendants of that in a maybe more civilized modern society.
0: And uh, to continue on, and I promise everybody at home, we're, this is not about all wizards of the coast, but it's a big kind of story this year that uh, how they just kind of just never found Uh, what the right footing was for anything. And so we're just going to go through this laundry list of, they also published some AI art.
1: Yeah. Accidental. To a certain extent, you can't blame them because it was an artist who did the work. It wasn't even straight AI work. He had his originals and then he used AIs to improve it. And if you look at the two, the improved AI are just so much worse than the originals. Um, And it, you know, maybe had been sitting around for two years or something, but it's kind of their fault too, because, you know, the AI art started started appearing last year. I guess it must not have been sitting around two years. And a lot of companies reacted strongly to it. Uh, Chaosium's the first one I know of who said, we will not use AI in our product. You may not submit AI to us. Uh, Kickstarter claimed at the time that they were going to uh, start pulling down AI products and and pulled down some there was a really strong backlash against it starting in late 2022 and a year later wizards hadn't done anything about it. they had not felt any need to make any policies against it and so again it it felt like a disconnect to me like they they just didn't understand what was going on in the rest of the industry and you know afterwards they did the right thing they you know made a policy they said no iei art they uh pulled that art, uh, for new versions of the book. Um, I know it was first viewed in the, the PDS. I, I assume it made it into the print, but, but I believe it's been replaced now. But then on the other hand, they put out an ad for magic, the gathering last month, which had an AI background that had been made, you know, just kind of a background to, to display a bunch of pieces of real art, but, uh, it was a couple of months after they'd said their artists can't use ai art but apparently they were still willing to do so in their marketing department so it looks like maybe things are not
0: as um settled there as one would hope and we'll the topic of ai art is l- later on in our discussion so we'll probably move on here but as uh, hasbro and wizards of the coast went through the year uh, at the very tail end, and once again, this kind of seems like reminiscent of last year where they're putting out announcements during like holiday time and everybody's kind of busy and distracted. but they dropped their book distribution um, and they've and their stock has been kind of steadily climbing. And then they finally announced uh, some layoffs recently uh, that um, was, I, I think, somewhat typical in a corporate world, but uh, still kind of uh, speaks to where Hasbro was at yeah
1: it is unclear what's going on with their their book distribution it like much of the stuff they did this year got some bad publicity but we have no idea what their plans are they haven't seen the follow-up but but the layoffs Hasbro uh announced early on the year that they were cutting back their workforce uh the toy sector at least for Hasbro has been doing kind of badly uh they laid off 800 people over the course of the year and then this last week they announced another 1100 layoffs when you put it all together that's about 30 percent of their workforce which is a huge amount uh and perhaps most surprising was that it did cut into wizards of the coast wizards of the coast for a couple of years now has been kind of the shining star in uh hasbro's uh set of companies i mean the person running hasbro now was the uh, ceo of wizards of the coast just a few years ago uh, which I think speaks to to how well they respect and appreciate what's going on there. In uh, this year, especially with Baldur Gate, Baldur's Gate 3, which just exploded their uh, digital uh, sales, uh, and the d and movie, uh, which didn't do as well as it might have, but was certainly great mass market exposure for them. And a couple of the Magic the Gathering um, expansions, particularly the Lord of the Rings one, Wizards of the Coast did great money wise from from what we know from the outside. But I mean, Hasbro has to talk about some of their stuff in their quarterly reports. And so the fact that they were cutting people was a shock and they cut really senior staff. They cut Mike Merles, I think, is that the name that everyone saw who has been out of d and for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, he was the architect of d d 5E, which is what all of their success currently is built on uh he was a prime consultant working on baldur's gate three he was working on some of those magic the gathering uh supplements that did so well um but they caught, cut a lot of a lot of senior people and the thing is hasbro has been cutting senior people from wizards of the coast for 24 years um it has created a real vacuum of the company which I think is exactly what causes problems like the OGL thing. They don't understand the industry because they've got the people with the best experience in the industry. And so they do really um, stupid stuff.
0: (laughs) And all of this on the cusp of the 50th anniversary and the relaunch of uh, whether they want to call it one D &D, and D 5.5 or six. And you said you saw some sneak peeks of that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're saying, I, I think it was PAX, where they uh, talked a fair amount about the Player's Handbook and touched on the, the new Dungeon Master Guide and the new Monster Manual. Uh, the Player's Handbook is going to be the biggest rulebook they've ever put out. Uh, besides the 12 core classes, it's going to have 48 subclasses um, or maybe 48 classes total. I'm not quite sure which, but 48 or 60. That's amazing. That's so much variety, so much variability wouldn't they have loved it if we were talking about how tremendously cool that is and that's tremendously cool that's that's a book i haven't played dnd in several years and still i I want that book they they should be doing that instead of you know trying to you know get money from the rest of the industry through royalties they're they're the big dogs their sales are going to you know overshadow anyone else's any time all they have to do to properly monetize dnd is make great books and from what we've seen so far of the 50th anniversary player's handbook and they're very explicit they it's not five five it's not six it's going to be totally compatible um or at least as totally compatible as it can with things like uh race and such changing um it looks like it's going to be a great book and that's all they need to do to be really successful and great games like baldur's gate three
0: too just don't screw up (laughs) essentially you you've you've got the lottery ticket that that just cash it in and rather than uh screw up sometimes you talk about a game and you say this is
1: so and so's game to lose it's no one's game to win it's their game to lose and uh you know the role-playing industry has been D's game to lose for all of its life
0: but and then and then, speaking of the opportunities that their screw-ups uh, presented themselves, there's uh, right after the OGL fiasco, you saw a lot of uh, lower echelon uh, games, uh, all quality products, kind of get a nice boost from people that were starting to explore elsewhere.
1: I was amazed by all the reports that we saw. Um, uh, Chiasium said that Call of Cthulhu you know, sold out several months of uh product in a month uh pathfinder said they sold out eight months worth of roll book in a month uh other people you know reported similar high 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 thing high high uh, sell-throughs of their product and you know it wasn't just the fantasy games it was you know let's try a horror role-playing grant game let's try a grittier fantasy game it was amazing how much of that will stick we'll have to see but it was really impressive that there were enough people who were upset at what was going on that they were really willing to try out other things. And it made a blip. It was noticeable, more than a blip.
0: And then I know uh, some prominent YouTubers, uh, not myself, because I'm always in this space, but they had Indie Game Month uh, by a, a few or a handful of uh, YouTubers. And once again, it kind of showcased that they were kind of pushing back against Wizards of the Coast and saying, there are other games out there which I obviously advocate for. Uh, but let's talk about some of those games uh, that are kind of all kind of uh, chipping away at the market share of Dungeons and & Dragons and who I think are all trying to position themselves to be the new uh, Pathfinder if the the new edition of Dungeons & Dragons uh, doesn't have the the uptake that they hope yeah I
1: we always have to be careful in the industry no one's ever really managed to be anywhere near Dungeons and Dragons um I sometimes say there's some very limited and uh extreme periods where maybe some things did slightly better than d d but they were time periods when D&D essentially wasn't being printed 1997 when uh TSR was on its way out of business in 2013, which was really between fourth and fifth edition. Um, so I think there were certainly companies that felt like they could take advantage of some of the discontent and offer their visions of gaming that um, obviously they thought were were better, um, more interesting, and you know maybe less corporate. Uh, you mentioned, you know, trying to, to get where Pathfinder was. And of course, Pathfinder itself was in that space too. They put out their second edition, uh, several years ago where they tried to differentiate themselves more from, uh, uh, D and after the whole OGL fiasco, they spent six or nine months stripping out everything they could from Pathfinder that had any, any D and D in it, anything from the SRD and so you know i think we'd have to list them first and say pathfinder is back out there they have probably made sure that they are fairly safe if something does happen again next year where you know who knows what could happen now that dnd is in the creative commons but i mean dnd 5s in the creative commons and pathfinder was of course built on the dnd 3 srd which i don't believe was ever put in though wizards claimed they were going to at the time uh, but of course, the two new big ones are Black Flag and uh, MCDM, uh, both of which I think were in process before uh, uh, the whole GL fiasco, but they definitely jumped on and said, hey, if you want something other than uh, uh, D&D, here's this. Uh, Black Flag became Tales of the Valiant, and you may know more of it than I, because all I really saw was the Kickstarter, in which they managed to, to raise a Good amount of money and uh there's been play test packets out um and the other mcdm is of course matt colville's game um he's done really well with supplements over the last several years uh, not just depending on his star power as a uh you know streamer but they've been really re- well respected and accepted particularly his monsters book of of last year um and so MCDM has been getting really good attention. It's on backer and it right now has raised $3 million. It was 2 million when I looked at it about a week <laughs> ago, when I started thinking about the, uh, year end things, uh, I think it's probably gonna end up, uh, five or $6 million by the time it closes on January 4th. Uh, and it advertises it itself as being, uh, more tactical, um, more, more focused on combat one resumes um and so that that's what its spin is but i think mcdm is is the one that has the potential to possibly uh uh push past uh pathfinder not (laughs) dnd but but it might be a threat i mean dnd 5e when it came out people were still so angry about 4e dnd was off the market for more than a year between 4e and 5e because their uh uh cancellation of it was so so abrupt um it wasn't clear how well it was going to do and then it did great and you know we have to attribute some of that to the design of the game to a real you know return to to classic mechanisms and ideas while simultaneously accepting hey there's been changes in the uh uh design, design tropes of the industry. But I think you also have to say streamer streaming had a lot to do with that. Uh, when I look at what what made gaming so much more popular in the 2010s in particular, streamings right up there with Kickstarter, uh, it's probably the two biggest things and for d it was streaming. And Matt Colville was one of the streamers, you know, probably not quite the influence of critical role but i'm not sure because it's not quite my corner of the industry um and so
0: him putting out a game that should
1: make wizards of the coast a little worried in a way that perhaps nothing has since pathfinder
0: well i find the timing of it very interesting because if you look at the the fine print and uh, i don't think maybe a lot of people even even care about that is that it's a two and a half year wait for this product and the timing of the backer kit or the crowdfunding for it seems to me like a very strategic move on Matt Colville's part that he's saying like I want to make sure that I like undercut D&D before it comes out and I want people to know that my game is coming but two and a half year wait that is like astonishingly long and I've often said like we hold uh smaller game designers to a higher uh standard uh beyond far west which we will talk about later but on but um that is something that like most people say design the game and have it ready to go before you hit to kickstarter but the fact that he put it out there using his leverage as a youtuber to be and you know obviously he's built up a lot of credibility over the years so people trust that he's going to come through with a good product but the fact that it's two and a half years away and the timing of it right now. And during the holiday season, which uh, common knowledge is do not put out a Kickstarter during the holiday season because nobody has money to invest in it. It's just, it seems to me that he saw this unique opportunity to go, I'm going to hit them right now. And then hopefully uh, I'll be able to cut into their market share. Wow. It
1: it certainly seems likely that the 50th anniversary books, when they're actually out, are going to suck a lot of oxygen out of the room. So um I think we still don't know exactly when they're coming out um and so I I could see that he might have tried to get it out in advance of the 50th anniversary to make sure he was going to get the attention we should remember that Pathfinder did the same thing um when uh uh the OGL got stepped back on from D&D 4E uh Paizo very quickly decided they were going to start working on Pathfinder and so in order to kind of make sure they had some of the attention to they had their beta out as a printed product at gen con in 2008 a year before the actual product was released so it's not two and a half years but that was i think a similarly strategic decision to get their own game out
0: before the other new game got all of the attention and then let's switch gears into the OSR world. We, you know, we talked about um, Cobalt Press and Pathfinder, but some of the other kind of smaller OSR retro clone kind of um, areas. And so Shadow Dark by Kelsey Dion it seemed to be it hit at the exact time when they should, uh, as far as getting in there after the OGL fiasco, people looking for new things, and that was a very uh, big su- surprise to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, that was. Either very lucky or very clever it kickstarted off at the end of february which was within a month of the ogl fiasco and it raised over a million dollars which uh for an osr product it, it, they've done extremely well in in recent years it's been very obvious uh you know with products like mothership and and other releases that people really are interested in that old school play but but a million dollars for an FRPG in the OSR space pretty astounding pretty impressive very lucky or very clever
0: and uh Labyrinth Lord
1: yeah Labyrinth Lord has been working on a second edition uh, which is very cool and very abruptly during the uh OGL uh fiasco they decided to switch it over and rather than just doing the second edition as a retro clone they're kind of going more expansive and doing kind of more mythically related classes and things that are really going to differentiate it as a game. And, you know, for me personally, that made me much more interested in it. I mean, I already have my, my BX clone, which is right here, old school essentials. If, if I want to, you know, play BX, I will play Gavin Norman's, you know, excellent, well laid out, you know, very carefully crafted game. So having a you know, different BX clone that, that actually has some variety. That's very exciting to me. So I feel like, you know, as horrible as the whole GL thing was for a lot of industry, the industry and a lot of people working in the industry who suddenly had a lot of uncertainty. And the OSR, it kind of feels to me like it's it's freed things up. You know, it it has made people say, you know, hey, we kind of have to step away from particularly the older SRDs what does that allow us to do and so labyrinth Lord 2e the way it's fallen out is is pretty exciting and a, a, the other game that really changed a lot and that was dolman wood which is gavin norman's uh kind of fairy wood setting and that's going to be its own standalone game now too and so that i think will have the opportunity to give it much more legs and that people can just pick it up and not have to get these oso ebooks which have been pretty hard to get at some points
0: And and Dolman would I know uh, a lot of people were upset because they were actually hoping for it to be a OSE setting, and then I know Gavin, maybe somewhat strategically about with the OGL, but also uh, just the content uh, made that kind of decision to go, no, it needs to be its own game, and uh, by all accounts, it was successful. A lot of people are very excited to see it, and uh, he's built up an incredible uh, reputation of providing quality products, so I, I'm excited to get that in my hands.
1: Me too. It it's always read to me like, what if Errol Lotus wrote a role-playing setting? And so it's kind of psychedelic and weird and neat. So I'm looking forward to it too. And I was disappointed it wasn't OSE. Um, but it apparently, as I said, came out somehow of the the concerns over 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 the OGL. And uh I think it'll help them sell it better.
0: And then a a couple other kind of OSR uh, games, DCC, I know uh, um, Goodman Games has been really pushing it hard since the OGL fiasco, and uh, it seems like it's really starting to gain some traction. I know uh, we'll talk about that they have an indie game design summit coming up, though it kind of Mm -hmm. fell a little bit weird. But I know that they're really trying to push themselves into the space as well as uh, Matt Finch also had a new edition of uh, Swords and Wizardry.
1: Yeah, yeah, DCC has always been pretty great. And I I would say the coolest thing they've done in in recent years has been really going back to sword and sorcery authors. So they have their new Jack Vance setting and material out. They did their Fritz Lieber one a few years ago. Now they're publishing a pulp magazine on sword and sorcery on an irregular basis they're doing prequel work there so it's great to see them if they're lifted up by the ogl problems and yeah it was great to see uh uh sword and sorcery back in matt finch's hands and they did a kickstarter too raised $150,000 or something like that um you know he was with trollard games on it for many years and now he gets to do it on his own again and really put a spotlight on it So very cool.
0: Okay. OGL, we can move away (laughs) for for the most part. It's probably going to trickle through for the rest of this stuff, but like, okay. We got through the OGL part of it. Now we can kind of take a breath here and just talk about, uh, you know, the mass market stories and uh, talking about critical role. They played to 12,500 people at the uh, Wembley Arena. And when I saw the picture of that, personally, I was like, I cannot believe that twelve and a half thousand people paid good money to go watch people play a role-playing game. It's beyond me me that I could actually see that happening, but yet it's a thing. So, who knew? Yeah,
1: who knew? I mean, Wembley Arena is a music venue, and it looked like a rock concert.
0: And is this just a fundamental shift in like the audiences like do you have a sense of uh the the aged or the demographic that are uh critters as they call them um and who watch this and do they only play uh 5e uh like and how how do you see like that audience moving in and maturing and well do you think they're gonna kind of flame out and go well i'm gonna move on I'm, I'm starting to have careers and family and all those types of things that often derail people
1: yeah it's hard to say i don't know what their demographics are um i would hope that they are going to you know continue playing and continue moving through the rest of the industry not just D um I, I think uh i think they represent a fundamental shift in in gaming, that you can look at something, and if it lasts a couple of years, you can say that's a trend. And when it lasts 10 years, you can say that's a fundamental change in the way our industry works. And I feel like both streaming of actual play games and uh, Kickstarter are now old enough, more than a decade, that they represent a fundamental change in our industry and a very positive one, two very positive ones.
0: And there's a lot of other actual play uh, channels out there, which a lot of people watch. And then uh, D&D Beyond um, has also got like Faster Purple, Worm, Kill Kill. It's got Matt Lillard in it. Uh, It just seems to be like an entertainment uh, aspect to it that I never in a million years thought people would ever watch live play. But um, here we are.
1: Yeah. I mean, did you ever think there was actually going to be a good D&D movie either? And here we are.
0: And by all accounts, the D&D movie, uh, it, made, it made money. But, you know, like anytime they put these kind of movies together, they were expecting like not just to break even and make a profit. They want like 2x profit. Like that's kind of the, the benchmark, it seems, when they put out these movies. So it seemed like a lot of people thought it was better than they expected compared to other D&D movies that have been made in the past. Uh, <laughs> but not a massive, massive hit hit.
1: No, um, financially, it seems to have not done well. You say they expect 2x, and that's mostly because they're putting money into marketing and stuff. I'm not convinced it's made money yet. I'm not convinced it'll ever make money. But uh, I think it was Chris Pine was saying that he thinks that they are talking about a second one. Uh, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was fun. Um, It was what indie Movie needed to do. It has over a 90% uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It was definitely critically well-received. They probably spent too much money making it is the problem.
0: And uh, speaking of like kind of crossover or media and, you know, video game industry is huge. As we know, it's actually bigger than the movie uh, industry and Baldur's gate three. That was a surprise hit and I'm sure uh, caught a lot of people off guard that it even uh, was as big as it was.
1: Yeah. It it was specifically called out in the third quarter report at Hasbro as being one of the things that made Wizards of the Coast and thus Hasbro at all profitable. Uh, I think they were saying they saw 40% growth in digital um, sales primarily because of it. Uh, and it's another one where it it, it, it didn't just do well uh, financially, it did well critically. Um, i look at metacritic for that one and i think it's at 96 or 98 somewhere up there it's got reviews saying it is the best DD game ever um it's still selling for full price a few months on which you know says people are still buying it you know at full price uh it seems to have done great and i think just like the DD movie it's really going to bring things into the mass market and we're going to see the effects of that in, in the years on that there's more and more people wanting to play D, seeing it as a um enjoyable and fun part of you know general american world
0: gaming culture and i can't help but wonder uh because it's essentially uh vtt um and how this might cannibalize any plans for D beyonds or like the one dnd uh, vtt and because it, if anything, I would just go, "Hey, let's take Baldur's Gate and like move it into Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast."
1: Yeah, the VTTs, Hasbro's been Wizards of the Coast has been kicking at that for 15 years now. Uh, you know, since D and D 4E, and they, I mean, D and D Beyond's doing okay. All of the virtual tabletops are doing okay um there are certainly people who want that experience i don't think most of our role playing of us role players want that experience i think most of us want to be sitting around a table with our friends you know eating cheetos and pushing dice around um so wizards of the coast seems to want it because they think they can get a monthly subscription fee out of it they already are selling dlc downloadable content through you know rule books on on the sites They clearly, probably, probably clearly see it as the future revenue model for them. And I'm not convinced that it's not a mirage that they have been chasing after for 15 years. And it's, I'm not convinced it's ever going to be the majority. I mean, at least as long as you and I are looking at these flat screens here. uh, You know, when, when we get the Dungeons and Dragons that, uh, I saw in the Legion of Superheroes in the 80s where you have a you know big tank of 3D figures that you can all see. That might be something different. But as long as we have, you know, this somewhat limited social interaction via, via online mediums, I'm not convinced that's gonna be what most role players want because it's such a innately social activity. But maybe I'm just an old grognard.
0: That's what I keep thinking, because I'm the same as you, but I'm maybe I'm just like long in the tooth and, and start to lose touch with things but uh you know talking about the pervasive nature of role-playing games in pop culture and mainstream media we've got stamps for uh warhammer for their 40th anniversary and we got stamps for dnd for their 50th anniversary thinking back upon those days of uh you know finding a red box in a drugstore or a hobby shop or a comic book shop yourself like did you ever think we'd end up in that state where like, it's part of like the lexicon and the culture of the North America and the world? Uh,
1: absolutely not. And uh, if you had asked me two months ago if I thought there was any chance there would ever be Dungeons and Dragons postage stamps, even after we'd heard about the Warhammer stamps, I would have told you no. So it is, it is shocking that it has reached that level of mass market penetration. And shocking that Ray Reninger and the people at Wizards of the Coast who helped design those stamps managed to sit on it for about two years. Not not let it leak out.
0: Yeah, and that's pretty cool. And then uh, speaking of yeah. another uh old trusted uh, name in uh role-playing, Tunnels and Trolls uh Rebellion acquired them recently. Yeah, that was very exciting. I
1: Rick Loomis very sadly passed away a few years ago, and so. Flying Buffalo disappeared. Uh, and Tunnels and Trolls went over to a company called WebSphere. And they just did nothing with it. Many of us were very disappointed. And so it going to Rebellion, that's very exciting. Um, rebellions flirted with role-playing before. They actually owned Mongoose Publishing for a brief time. And that was not a great partnership, apparently. But maybe them having it on their own will do it um talents and trolls is very interesting because it was one of those games that had a very early translation uh not translation uh publication uh in in the uk uh chris harvey games did the most widely known one but there was an earlier one too uh they published them as books um you know like uh paperback books uh because they had all of the solo games and so they really penetrated the uk market which was true of several games traveler request a couple of others that had their own printings out there so rebellion also being in the uk they probably see it as something that has nostalgic value and that they can do very well with it and i think they might be right and so that makes me very hopeful that they'll do a big push on it but we haven't really heard what that's going to be yet
0: now was it web sphere that kind of threw out the fact that uh, all these people that had been maintaining property just out of sheer love of the game of tunnels and trolls didn't they reach out or like send cease and desist was that web sphere web sphere that did that
1: maybe i I don't really remember that the whole web sphere just seemed to mostly
0: disappear but um possibly okay well onwards and upwards and i know uh it's funny i i often stumble across old tunnels and trolls uh, solo games and, uh, that seems to be a, a bigger trend, you know, speaking of people that want to sit around the table and be social or VTTs, I see like a huge growth in, uh, solo games. Um, like we've had uh, geek gamer on to talk about solo games and uh, more and more like the removal of the GM and having the mechanics in place for solo games seems to be a trend, at least that I'm seeing.
1: Yeah, I think so. I, we've seen a lot of, um, the old classic solo game books coming back Lone Wolf has been um, constantly getting uh, rebooted and reprinted for about 20 years now a lot of that from Mongoose but even since Joe Deaver's passing there's been new ones coming out Um, kind of over in the board game sphere we see so many board games that have uh, solo options automata they often call them and Uh, You know, we've been flirting with it in the uh, role-playing field uh, pretty much since the indie games started coming out. So many of them had GM-less play. Um, So it does seem like a trend that's kind of pushing in a lot of different ways.
0: And then also back to, like, kind of movies and pop culture. uh, Evil Genius uh, sued Netflix for using their idea Bible in the Rebel Moon movie. and Yeah. You know once again like you see these opportunities for games to impact movies and movies to impact games and like it, it's kind of interesting to see how it worked and in this case it didn't uh, work out so well for evil genius
1: yeah it's really unclear what happened there um you know the evil genius got a license to produce role-playing games um for the rebel moon series uh and um they looked at it and they said, Wow, there isn't much background here. And so they started putting together the Bible, and it was accepted by Netflix. And then at some point, uh, Netflix said, Hey, you broke our contract by distributing information on this at one of the trade shows or something, and uh, canceled the contract. And Evil Genius had all of this work they'd done. They had this Bible, which apparently Netflix was happy with and maybe using. But I think, I think the thing that's going to make Lil come of it is that the first Rebel Moon uh, movie came out about a week ago, and it has been trashed up and down. It has a 25% or 26% rating on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Everyone says it is a mess. So certainly Evil Genius is not going to be happy about their lost time, but might be they didn't actually lose an opportunity.
0: And then, you know, speaking of like the coverage that we saw for like the OGL fiasco, um, I can't help uh, in my little world too here. I see that Dicebreaker announced uh, that they were for sale by the owner of ReadPop who organizes events like PAX. Um, And then also uh, speaking of layoffs, Lynn Cortega who broke the OGL story and was like instrumental in that was laid off from IO9 Gizmodo in November. And I can't help but kind of see that traditional journalism of how you get word out is kind of changing and you see the matt colville's of the world that they have a huge presence
1: yeah i think print journalism within our industry is in in very bad shape there is so much of it that is just trash um not the ones you were talking about um but you know just even in parallel uh, industries i i used to read uh some of the comics news sites and They read like they're written by AIs now, you know, just, you know, building on facts that people know paragraph after paragraph, and they're just horrible. And that will get worse with actual AI writing. And so the fact that the actual good ones like Lynn, who was providing, you know, great reporting on the whole OGL thing are packing up shop. We're not going to have anything left except the junk and the youtubers and other people and you know i want to be able to sit down and read something not have to spend an hour watching it
0: yeah and i would say a, part of a lot of that is just marketing advertising revenue uh it's mm-hmm. social media is like scooping a lot of it so it's tough for a company like Dicebreaker to sell advertising on their website yeah because it's just not uh in line with the way things have been moving with social media, advertising, and-
1: uh, And and it hasn't been for a long time. I I ran RPG net for many years, and the advertising revenue we pulled in was always much less than it should have been for the impressions we had, or so it felt.
0: And then you end up where, uh, uh, not to say any of these uh, publications, but then you get that sloppy journalism where it's just copy, cut, paste, and- that's a story and yeah yeah all that kind of stuff uh and conventions were back in full swing after you know uh covid happened and then last year was better and then this year got back into full swing but the the audacity that could almost be a role-playing game itself Uh, maybe it's like uh honey heist or uh, blades in the dark gen con card thieves that was pretty incredible to hear that story and actually the actual the volume of what they stole and the value of it holy smokes
1: Yeah, a quarter of a million dollars worth of cards seems to be what what they settled on. And these were two guys, game designers, actually, allegedly. Allegedly, these two guys just walked on and grabbed a cart full of uh, Magic the Gathering cards from a retailer or plopped them on a card, I don't know which, and just walked out with them. Uh, Fortunately, there were people who thought they looked suspicious and took pictures and uh i believe there might have been some cameras in the area too they have arrested these two game designers who allegedly took these cards as is shown in all these pictures and uh they're up for felony theft charges because the value was so high but man it's just awful that at our top gaming convention of the year you know maybe one of the biggest places uh, other than you know our own dining room tables that we really feel safe in a part of a community that there's people doing that but i mean it's not surprising the community's gone so big
0: well it's amazing what you can get away with with a clipboard and a confident uh, smile and walk in and see what happens and then um also wizards of the coast maybe in efforts to kind of build back some bridges or also know back into conventions yeah it was such a shock when they stepped back from it during
1: the four year so you know if the ogl fiasco is what brought them back to conventions and they're just doing minor stuff but but still that's that's going to be a big plus because as i said i think one of their biggest problems is a disconnect from the community uh, which means it's not going to do any good if they just have the designers there because the designers they know the community but if they actually get some of their management there that's that's what I think would make a difference
0: and so now moving into our kind of crowdfunding recap of the year and and we'll start off with kickstarter um far west <laughs> and for those that don't know about far west just give us a a, a recant or a retelling of the the long saga of the game far west yeah on so far west was gareth
1: michael skarka's uh, Wuxia slash western rpg uh he kickstarted in 2011 which was pretty much at the start of the uh kick era for role-playing games uh the first first kickstarters of uh, uh node all came out in that year um and um it's now 2023 and the game kind finally came out in pdf this year so what happened in between was uh gareth mostly stayed in touch with his um uh fans backers uh but promised I, I think some websites list like 80 times or something uh various times in which the game was definitely gonna come out and uh, obviously it didn't um i i felt i always felt really bad for gareth because It was clear that he had this weight of responsibility weighing upon him, and for whatever reason, he was unable to fulfill it. Um, And, you know, he had it weighing on him for 12 years. That's just awful. But on the other hand, he was really pissing people off because he was saying things that, in retrospect, were clearly not true about, you know, how close the game was to completion. And so, you know, on the one hand, it was a really strong example of the dangers of Kickstarter, um, that if you offer up something that is not yet done, which is perfectly okay by Kickstarter rules, especially if it's a creative project, you might find yourself in a position where you do not feel creatively able to produce the product. Because I mean, when we write, when we draw, when we do whatever creative things, You have to be in the mindset to do it you can't just you know sit down and do it without producing crap if you're not in that mindset and i i think the anxiety and tension over an unfulfilled Kickstarter is just going to make that worse and worse so it certainly showed that danger but i also think there were a lot of people who were really mean to gareth for a very long time over a relatively small amount of money and like i said i understand some of that because he was making promises that he was not keeping again and again and again. But I think it was an awful situation for everyone involved. And I am so happy for him and so happy for all the people that uh, backed it to get a copy. I actually got a copy, not because I backed it, but because I backed another game that was also late and they, they cross gave copies away from it, uh, of it
0: well i couldn't i when i saw it blow up on the internet of like it just kind of came out of the blue because how many times had uh, gareth uh, michael uh said something like oh next month i'll have a draft next month i'll have a draft and it had become a butt of jokes of like oh you know i'll probably retire before far west gets released so congratulations far west is out there the relief is off and once again, like you said, it's a danger of uh, indie game design and uh, have your game as ready as you can before you get there. Speaking of delays, I can't help but talk about. I think when we have first had you on the show, we were like kind of talking about the success of Mothership and over a million dollars. And here we are, three years later, um, that uh, they have burnt up, I think, a little bit of goodwill on their delays. And, you know, th- there's reasons and there's supporters that defend it but it's quite a delay compared to what uh, people thought yeah
1: uh does a great uh poll every year asking people what their most anticipated games were and i was pretty surprised when i looked back through and saw that mothership had been one of the most anticipated for this year and it's still not out
0: yeah uh and not to say that it's you know people often say you only have one chance to make a first impression and uh I suspect if I look at it, because I mean, they obviously have a lot of uh, people that support them and have a good reputation that it's one of those don't let perfect stand in the way of good. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think people probably would have accepted good uh, much sooner. But with all that said, if you put out a really nice product at the end of it all, uh, people are usually willing to forgive you. But if it's not good, then look out yeah i
1: think you actually raise the expectations higher and higher the longer you wait making it that you have to delay that much longer to make it that much more perfect
0: and so i guess we'll see they say that it's going to be out uh, in the first quarter of uh next year hopefully so uh we'll see uh, i might be yeah, fingers crossed uh there's also a, a few other kind of notable things that i saw like Harnworld 40th anniversary edition Uh, kind of came back. I know a lot of, uh, people I know actually have a real soft spot for Harn World, uh, and also Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was a bit of a surprise to me. I have often said, like, I think Palladium made like some incredible games. I, I played a lot of Palladium in my day, but I shouldn't say games. I should say settings. They made an awful lot of amazing settings, but the mechanics were always clunky and it just was a huge cognitive load on GMs, but uh it came back Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I guess partly maybe because of the movie and some nostalgia yeah it was great to see
1: Harn World back um though though the issues of ownership of that have been complex for a while Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles I think it raised three million it was it was somewhere around there I was shocked I saw a lot of people saying at the time I think people are going to be pretty surprised when they see the game because it's a you know, very 1980s game design, unless it's being massively revamped. You know, it av- originally grew out of a, a D&D variant that, you know, went into Palladium Fantasy and then eventually to their other games. And it is a complex, um, dense game system. I mean, I used it to play Robotech many, many years ago, and I was uh, confused by the various levels of damage and... um the real complexity of it so i'm shocked to see it do so well and i hope people are very happy when they they get the product but it it was surprising
0: well shannon it's easy it's you got hit points you got sdc you got mdc it's very easy come on you should you should know this stuff and i've often said riffs is still uh, i think uh, a very very cool setting and uh, i gotta get try out the uh, savage world riffs just to see if i can play the same setting in a different uh, rule set uh, and then um also as far as uh shipping costs for kickstarter i mean shipping costs have gone up everywhere uh, for all crowdfunding um as far as people supporting it sometimes i can't help but go the shipping costs are almost as much as the game yeah there's more than one
1: kickstarter um where If it's not something that I really feel like I want to support the creator, but it's just something I want instead, I'll look at the shipping cost and I turn away. I mean, I have a little more problem with that because I live in Hawaii and about one in three Kickstarters don't understand that, uh, you know, using USPS Hawaii is just as cheap as anywhere else are they using UPS or, you know, something else. And so I, I sometimes see astronomical ones. Um, there was a fighting fantasy uh Kickstarter uh this this last year for board games and the shipping was like $50 or something for a $30 game and so I said nope but uh yeah I mean they have continued going up um we certainly saw big problems in the middle of the uh uh, pandemic but they don't really seem to have recovered from that um the worst things I saw were were again on the board gaming side. Um, there's a company who has basically been holding their customers up saying, give us more money or we won't ship your products. And yes, you can ask for a refund and we'll consider whether we want to do refunds, uh, you know, when we see which ones come in and, you know, like one of their games, they were asking like for an extra $50 or something. These, these are not small amounts and, you know, they may be representative of the changes, Uh, that's a company that has had several ones backlogged. So it starts to become less obvious if they're actually trying to fund additional Kickstarters or past Kickstarters or or who knows what. I mean, Kickstarter is not a store. We know that. I think most people who Kickstart don't know that, um, or at least they don't internalize it. Um, But on the other hand, uh, I expect companies to, give uh, their best efforts to put things out. And, you know, if they don't make as much profits as they expected, oh, well. I mean, I don't expect them to go back into their own pocket to fund things, but
0: some people have. And uh, on the Kickstarter note, I mean, you provided a a top 10 list of uh, kickstarting funding. Um, I, and we talked a little bit before we went live, I was shocked at how many 5e products in the top 10 that i had never heard of and i kept in my head going is that because i've got my own little niche of the osr and like indie kind of games but you know you who also have a a pretty good pulse on things like you had not heard of some of these things
1: yeah i mean 5e seems to do very well on kickstarter um you said top 10 list and it's it's a list of kickstarters over a million dollars. So these are, are highly successful kickstarters, and you know maybe there's streamers I don't know of. You know, you if you do a popular stream, you can get you know ten or twenty thousand people who will buy your product no matter what, and um, that's that's enough to hit that that million dollar level. Um, it's more than enough. So I don't know exactly where they're coming from, other than the fact that I will say. 5e is very successful wizards of the coast has been telling us that for several years it took us a few years to really believe it it is very
0: obviously true and there's probably people like me that just still refuse to believe it so it's uh, (laughs) it's probably to my own detriment but we'll see what happens um and then backer kit uh kickstarter has always uh relied upon other people for for fulfillment and that's always been like an achilles heel i guess uh as far as like you always needed to figure that piece out and they refused to get into it and then backer kit said well we'll take care of that and then uh, they did that very successfully and now they said well guess what we'll just take on the front end of it too and uh, push kickstarter out so they had a big splash with gloomhaven yeah the
1: gloomhaven grand festival I want to say Kickstarter, but, but Backer Kit, you know, it was one of the first really, really successful ones I know. And they were helped by the fact that they were um, funding a wide variety of things. They were funding a uh, Gloomhaven role playing game, which has some star names on it and looks really neat. Uh, second edition of Gloomhaven, I think, was in there. I'm not sure all what. So they had a lot of things that you could spend your money in, you know, you could. You could fund for hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but they also raised $5 million from that by a backer kit. Um, I think that may be what showed a lot of people. It was very viable. Um, and we've had two more backer kits of full-on role-playing games. Cause like I said, the Gloomhaven had other stuff mixed in that have exceeded a million dollars on backer kit. Um, Mon- Monty Cook did one, uh, the Magnus Archives, I think that uh, was related to a podcast um that did 2 million and uh right now mcdm is there and it's like we said earlier already at 3 million and my guess is it's going to hit at least five or six i may be underestimating it might hit 10. um those clearly show hey why not just get on backer kit you only have to pay out once uh and you know they will uh, let people back for a while and then they'll do all the normal stuff they do that you don't want to, you know, the context fulfillment downloads, whatever you get through there. So it seems like a one stop solution could be deadly to Kickstarter. Um, I don't know how much of it is based on having to have a large audience already, but, but those ones have been very successful this year uh my biggest problem is i haven't found a good way to search through them yet like i do for a kickstarter to make sure i got all of them so there could be others i don't know of
0: yeah discoverability is always a, pr- a problem with any of these platforms and i have to say i uh and i have no proof of this but i i can't help but think that backer kit basically went to uh the folks at gloomhaven and and uh said hey we'll reduce our commission if you come on because they wanted to like hook some of the big players but that's just uh, speculation however, um, however it happened it certainly
1: yeah. showed how viable it is as an alternative which hasn't been true for game found in the role-playing industry they were the other big one that people were really experimenting with and you know this year i could find two that exceeded a hundred thousand dollars which you know when i stopped you know, listing all the kickstars over a hundred thousand a few years ago, there were over a hundred. And so it just doesn't seem to be doing as well, but backer it might be game found seems to be doing very good for board games, but it's all about where your audience is.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I know that, uh, you had mentioned that evil hat is uh, back to Kickstarter with uh, apocalypse keys. And I think they had flirted with game for a while. And that might've been as a result of, uh, the uh, oh, what the heck was Kickstarter talking crypto like? Yeah, uh, 2021. I don't, even, I don't even remember what they were talking about at that point. Kickstarter said, We're gonna
1: redo Kickstarter with blockchain. blockchain I actually do okay. technical writing for blockchain. Um, so I looked at that and I said, What are they talking about? You know, it just seemed totally out there. And they did it at a point where blockchains were receiving a lot of really bad publicity. Uh, it was because of a very specific technical methodology that's used by Bitcoin and the success of Bitcoin, but it kind of got everyone upset at blockchains in general. And, you know, so they introduced the thing that didn't make any sense, that gave them lots of biopublicity, that got people talking about leaving the platform. It it was as bad as what Wizards was doing this year, um, except they didn't keep doubling down on it. Um, So, yeah, Evil Hat, I know they tried one thing out on, on Game on Gamefound. Um, I don't know if it was their big plan to do it or not, but but as you say, their their newest material seems back on Kickstarter, and I would guess that's probably people are saying we should probably stay here. Um, I mean, there's several several different crowdfunding funding platforms, and to date, Kickstarter's the only one that's been really successful for role playing games. But they've also been introducing more and more restrictions causing people problem the biggest ones being uh the limitation on um simultaneous uh, unfulfilled campaigns um and so i know like russ Morsi over at nworld was saying you know the limit is such that we can't actually put as much into the pipeline as we want we have to stop and pause even though you know we have the model where we can push them all through we know what we're doing we can't do it with their their new rules and so that is, that's another thing to pushed some people off of Kickstarter to use others, but only for their subsidiary things that they don't think are going to do as well anyways.
0: And then uh, on that note, uh, Kickstarter and AI, basically Kickstarter said, okay, we're done. Um, no AI, or at least you have to notify people that it is AI. And uh, there was a couple... Uh, AI products that kind of came out and backlash, and as we're trying to find our footing in what AI means to the industry. Yeah,
1: 2022 Kickstarter put out a weak notice that you know they were going to put some restrictions on AI, and they knocked off a few um, Kickstarters that were exclusively AI stuff. But but this year, as you say. They've let people kickstart things with with notices. Uh, Riot Minds put out uh, some 5E products that had AI in them and they got some bad publicity and they seemed to do okay on them. Um, The biggest one I saw was uh, a huge Terraforming Mars, which is, again, a board game, uh, Kickstarter, which, uh, you know, they said, yeah, we're using AI. And they raised millions of dollars, I believe, despite that. Um, despite some people being very angry about it. I mean, I didn't back it and I loved the game and I wanted one of the supplements they were putting out. But
0: And so more and more you see that come down to uh, almost like a moral choice uh, for a lot of people that uh, do you support uh, indie game designers and indie artists and uh, or not? And so it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, over time because AI art is steadily improving. And even uh, for graphic design and and that kind of thing, you see it all the time that you can have generative fills um, that do a lot of the stuff that cloning might've done in the past. And so where do you draw the line um, for any of that stuff? And so uh, uncharted territory, I'd say for a lot of people in the game design industry. Yeah. One of my biggest problems with it personally is
1: I feel like it is great to have AIs, computers, robots, whatever, doing work that is not um, fulfilling for us, you know, whether that be scanners in a, you know, grocery store or you know, figuring, analyzing, uh, you know, scientific uh, medical things to find new, you know, things we might try and use to cure cancer that that's great. But when instead we're replacing creative jobs that actually fill our souls that are not the things that we do because we have to but because we want to that becomes very problematic for me
0: yeah you might as well have uh, ai players too right that's the kind of yeah. a common joke uh, and then we're all just a uh, simulation at that point um other kind of games that kind of and other stories that kind of jumped onto the scene a marvel rpg uh came yeah matt matt farbik one of the nicest guys in the
1: industry seems to have a real, real hit with his Marvel multiversal role playing. Uh, It seemed to get great attention. He's been heavily demoing it. It's got a new King supplement that's out in the very near future, which means that uh, it is uh, riding on the coattails of you know, some of the stuff happening in the movies. So um, you know, that's great. I'm really thrilled to see it. And it's, it's really surprising and cool that of all of the licenses marvel is one that almost every edition almost every version almost every game that's ever come up for marvel has been really really well respected in various ways i'll i'll exclude the one marvel did around 2000 which was not well loved but you know you go back to the old color charts of the uh marvel superheroes that tsr did and uh you know, all the way up to this new one by Matt Farbeck. And there's been a lot of ones that have just been fun designs that people feel are really appropriate for the games.
0: And uh, we talk about, like, diversity in role-playing games and, like, how it's broadening broadening out there beyond its normal audiences. And so, the yeah, the Diana Jones Awards? Yeah, the Diana Jones, for a couple of years now, has been
1: offering some... Uh, awards to uh diverse up and coming uh designers so that's been great to see and you know obviously getting new voices in from diverse uh diverse you know cultures uh diverse backgrounds diverse genders etc it improves everything it gives us different point of views i mean a, a lot of one of the coolest things about role playing is that uh we get to put ourselves into these roles, these characters, these personas that are not our own to try and experience lives in different ways. You know, it's kind of the same thing you get from reading, but in a much more, you know, personal to you way. And so the fact that there's an increasing number of people being welcomed into the field and being supported by things like the Diana Jones Awards to show us, you know, viewpoints that we would never would have considered that's amazing. It's cool. It, it betters all of us. And it's so sad to me that there is a small group of people who are angry at that.
0: And then, uh, you know, on the kind of the same line of, uh, thought, uh, DCC, uh, they announced an indie RPG creator summit this coming January. So after the new year and, uh, their marketing for it, uh, raised some controversy or some backlash. Oh, it
1: was very unfortunate because they, put out their initial shot of, I, I think they have 40 or 50 participants overall. And they put out an initial grid of, you know, like 2.5, two by five 2x5 of 10 of the participants. And they were all middle-aged white men. <laughs> and that was not a good look. And, you know, who knows how in the world they decided that. Um, a lot of the names from what I saw were people who were you know more involved with goodman games and dcc so that might be why they chose that particular set but got them a lot of backlash and they very quickly put out another one that should you know hey you know here's some of the more diverse participants and you know i feel like goodman games has you know tried to make sure there is diverse participation in that, that that they weren't excluding that but the fact that they initially put out this ad just showing the white men shows shows just kind of the societal, cultural, you know, things that that people might not be purposefully doing, but they're things that disadvantage minorities within the culture as a whole because they just, how are, how things get done, how people think about things. And Luke Gygax is back at Trollord. Well... He, he has, at the least, um, managed to get them back a license for Gygax Games. This is great, amazing. You know, Gary died in 2008, and shockingly, uh, his widow pulled all of his the licenses for all of his products. Trollard Games was in the middle of producing Castle Zagig, which was finally Castle Greyhawk, kind of at least as it was being recreated decades later. Uh, you know they had the uh, various fantasy world books. Um, I think they had just started uh, reprinting *The Guard*, *Guard the Rogue* in a nice hardcover for the first book. They were doing great work, legendary adventures. I think maybe Mongoose had picked up a new license for it, and all got pulled. Um, and so I, I, I think the assumption was, hey, you know, maybe she's found some bigger publishers, uh, and then fifteen years went by. <laughs> and all of Gary's later work, the stuff that he actually owned instead of TSR owning, it's been off the market, you know, you haven't been able to get it. Some of it was only ever available, you know, in very limited runs or PDFs. And so that was effectively impossible to get. And so uh, apparently, I don't know the specifics, and I would love to know more of them. There's apparently now, you know, a judge involved with the estate and as far as I can tell from what's been said, he gave some rights to Luke to license things and Luke licensed them to get to uh, Trollard. That's what it looks like to me. And so Trollard already did a pre-order of a new print of the first Castle Zagig book, which was Eagsburg, um, uh kind of, you know, defining the urban areas. It's what uh, Gary was most interested in, in the product at the time. Uh, and they also did a Kickstarter and raised about $100,000 for an adventure of his called The Hermit. So uh, from what we've heard, uh, Luke and our trollards have said, we need these to be successful if we're going to maintain the license from the court. Looks to me like they've been successful. So I've got my fingers crossed. I mean, what we're all really hoping for is, you know, first of all, that the the last products that that came out, the... You know first look at the runes and dungeons and the very high levels of Castle ag get reprint because those were very low print runs and they had to be destroyed several months after they were printed and you know even more so i think we're we're hoping that they're able to to go beyond that but i don't know if they will because uh uh gary apparently asked that his notes never be published and so we don't have those and the prime people that uh Gary was working with have now moved on. You know, one of them's like running Northwind Adventures now, uh where he's done the very successful Hyperborea game and so
0: we will see. That's Jeffrey Talianian. I'll put a link up above. I just interviewed Jeffrey uh, probably about a month ago, so
1: and we'll talk a little
0: <laughs> bit about that. Um and then uh Andrews McNeil, uh who is a big publisher, they had an RPG division and they did uh, Neverland and they did Oz and they did Zweihander and Blackbirds and everything seemed to be going great and then they just shut down the division uh suddenly. Yeah, that was very
1: unfortunate. They uh, they closed it down right at the end of 2022 and uh From everything we've heard it was still selling very well the royalty checks apparently were still very good right up to the day that they closed and so um i talk about comparative sometimes in designers and dragons and it's when a um, publisher has two different product lines it doesn't actually matter if they're both doing well it matters if the lesser line is doing as well as the upper line and so i would have to guess that Uh, they decide the role-playing games were not doing as well as their other books that they were producing. And even though they were making apparently very good money, you know, when they looked at the costs they put in and the money they got out, the percentages just weren't as good. And that's obviously hard. Um, You know, some things like the yearly uh, uh, layoffs at Hasbro, those speak to me a very bad breakdown of capitalism where you um, no longer actually care about the products you're producing, you care about the value you're generating for stockholders. And the problem of comparative sales, it's tougher because like your infrastructure costs go up, what you're paying your employees goes up. And it does start to be a real issue if something's not doing as well. So that was very, very sad. Um, But I'm very happy uh, Daniel Fox got so I hand her back. he he has new companies and he's doing new work. He was uh, very unhappy about the Andrew McMeal deal going under from everything we've seen on social media. But but he seems to have bounced back. And I think most importantly, he got the game back. That's always the big danger when you uh, link up with a corporation that they might hold on to your your IP that you brought with you forever and not use it. That That's the real scary thing. And he's going to be able to use it if he wants, which is great.
0: Yeah, and I think that going to that whole aspect of like, uh, you know, a lot of game designers, indie game designers in particular, they, they just want to break even. Like they they would be doing this anyways, and they just want to break even, and that's fine. And then uh, on top of that, yeah, when you make the deal with the uh, big publisher, uh, deal with the devil, so to speak, uh, you might get more uh, prominence out there on bookshelves. But at the same time, you kind of lose your IP and your... And why you're doing it in the first place. So that's always the battle that you uh, run into, right? Is uh, what makes sense for you as an indie game designer?
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've complained some about Hasbro and, you know, Andrew McMill here about some of the kind of, you know, decisions that they make that are about making money as opposed to bringing joy. And I just want to quickly contrast that with Mongoose Publishing, who has been amazing. They, have been over the last two or three years, shifting over to a employee owned model. I mean, basically they're giving the company away to the the employees. Uh, They're funding education for their employees. They're taking away crunch time. Uh, They're bringing in cooked lunches for the employees uh, and they're letting them help determine or maybe even choose what's being produced. And it seems pretty much the counter to the attitude at say Hasbro, you know, it's, it's not about the money it's about, you know, making sure that the employees are doing something joyful, non-stressful, enjoyable, and, and, and creating great products too. Of course, that's the desire, but I think it creates more great products. And given that our industry is basically built on people, creators, designers, but pretty much anyone at these companies sacrificing better financial opportunities To work somewhere that they feel is fulfilling the mongoose model is where companies need to be going
0: and uh, we're going to talk now about predictions and those that we lost but first what is shannon up to like i've mentioned before we've got four amazing books i know a lot of people a lot of people love them Uh, you've done a fantastic job just tell us what are you up to and where are things going for you
1: Well, I have been working for four years now, half time on new books, and I am very pleased that the first of them will be out next year. It is called This is Free Trader Beowulf, uh, A System History of Traveler, and as it happens, it is out from Mongoose, who uh, I was just talking about. I think they are planning it for a spring to summer release in PDF, and their hardcovers usually uh, follow three, four months later. Uh, it was a book that I spent about a year and a half part-time on. I started at the start of 2021 and finished, nope 2022, and finished it in October. Um, I loved it. It is one of the most fun things I've ever read because I've been a traveler fan for um, a very long time, about 40 years. Um, and digging into its history and writing a book-length book length uh, uh, report on because because it, it's about the same length as uh, the first designers and dragons book, uh, the red one. It was terrific. I learned so much. I went through so much fun material. I really reconnected with the whole universe of traveler in a way that that made me love it all over again. So that that's one thing. Um, my next project that will be out is probably designers and dragons origins. Uh, some years ago i wrote a number of product histories and by a number i mean hundreds uh, maybe a thousand uh, for drive-through rpg on uh, early dD products uh, and i have consolidated the first decade and a half of those OD d aD first edition and basic dD and mistara uh, into a series of four books um, i am right now waiting for some final comments and incorporating some final comments then because it's four books I have some editing to get them all in uh, final shape to make sure they're all carefully coordinated. And uh, Evil Hat and I have signed a contract for them to publish them. It probably will not be in 2024 unless one of their Kickstars suddenly falls through because they have a very full Kickstarter um, schedule. So I am hoping for 2025 for those four books. But because they are about things so far in the past, they're not going to get outdated. So if they need to sit a little bit. And that's not all. I have also, since I started uh, on my new History Project Time, been working on a series of sequels to Designers and Dragons, covering uh, histories that I did not cover the first time. And so at this point, I am about six months away from finishing a first draft of three new books. Two are called Lost Histories, and they cover the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 100s. Uh, they start off with little soldier games with Ral Partha. I think those are two, the two earliest histories I have, and they continue into uh, things from the hot odds that didn't get covered the first time, like some of the earliest OSR publishers who we really didn't know quite how how important they were going to be when I first started writing *Designers and Dragons* uh, 20, 2011, 2012 or so. So. Uh, and the third book is is on the tens because the decade is past, and now we can talk about some of the uh, publishers there. So that's what I'm working on about eight books that are in different forms of preparation, but five of them are going to be done in the next few months
0: wow uh and you are prolific and i am a follower of of a patron of yours on patreon and i'm going to put all the links to other people that want to get kind of sneak peeks because you do share some of this content ahead of time and uh, so uh, i will put the links in the uh, show description for those that are interested in uh, being a patron of uh, shannon and uh, all the good work that uh, he has been doing and i'm a traveler nerd i've had mark miller on the show before i'll put a link up above there and uh I really love it, and uh, also, too, obviously, I love game design, and your books are the go-to. When I want to reference something or I want to look something up, that's where I go to. So it's an invaluable resource, and they're tough to find. I don't know if they're they're in your area. If you come across one, snap it up, because are you going to maybe reprint them when you do the 2010s, uh, possibly, to do? Well,
1: yeah, the... um... Paperbacks have dropped out of print. I think maybe just the 70s and 80s have. The 90s and 100s might still be vaguely available. Uh, you can get them as nice uh, print-on-demands at DriveThruRPG. Uh, those are the books that I have sitting out uh, that I use for, for reference. Uh, paper's a little thinner than I like. You can kind of see through it, but the hard covers, the case binding is so nice. Um, the reprinting's a really hard uh, question because um, there's two problems they're out of print and they're out of date. So, um, you know, there are, so I I've written, uh, actually new website, designers dash and dragons.com. Um, I collected all of my online writings there, uh, in the last couple of months. Uh, and among them are, are updates for some, I've got like an update for, uh, chaosium for Paizo for wizards of the coast, figuring out how to incorporate those into the books is tough because, um, the odds the book is already 460 pages or something. Um, it's really pushing the limits of what we can do in that size. So I want them to be updated. I want them to be reprinted. I want the new material I'm doing to be distinctive so that people who decide the updates aren't important to them can just grab the new books. And I don't know how all that's going to come down. Evil and I talked about it a little bit last year, but then we decided to Push the Arjun's books ahead because uh, of the fiftieth anniversary and the fact that they were closer to done. I don't know how we're going to do it yet. I we have to figure something out. It's a tough question. Um, I I said you know maybe we start breaking them all into two books. I don't know.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing it when when it does come. And uh, once again, I'll put the links to all of Shannon's uh, socials and uh, Patreon and your new website all in the description. So, uh, and, you know, obviously I'm a big fan and uh, you produce a lot of great stuff. But uh, so moving on, predictions. Do you have any predictions uh, for this upcoming year? You know, obviously the 50th anniversary and the new release, that's going to be a big one.
1: Yeah, I, uh, it's always, (laughs) you know, we made predictions last year and I'm curious what we said. I'm certain we did not predict, you know, any of the big things that happened because they were so chaotic and I mean, it's all, all a big chaos system. Who knows? The 50th anniversary is one of our, our few things that we can really say. I think it will be really successful. I think it will bring, um, uh, D&D, uh, into the public eye even more than before, I think it will rehabilitate uh, Wizards of the Coast a little bit from their mess-ups of 2023, as long as they don't do more of it in 2024. Um, I think there is some fear that um, they might try and push some things with VTTs again and with beyond. I mean, I've seen people saying, oh, as soon as they get 50th anniversary out, you know, they're going to start going after the OGL again. And I mean that seems irrelevant to me at this point. Five, five E's in the creative commons. Three isn't. And there's a lot that's built on it. But I don't think Wizards cares about it. Um, you know, I don't I don't think the OSR, they care about Pathfinder probably. And I don't think they care about the OSR books that are built on 3x. Um, so that my hope is that it's going to rehabilitate them and really make people happy about the game again. But I I have grave concerns after this week because of all of the layoffs i mean that just speaks to the fact that they don't care about their institutional memory that they don't respect their design teams it it doesn't speak well but but fingers crossed um beyond that i mean tales of the valiant uh it's in play testing i don't quite remember the dates for when it's going to be published but it seems to me that that'll be the first really big uh, post-DOGL fiasco. Hey, here's a new fancy role-playing game. I don't think it's going to, you know, approach Pathfinder, which means it'll be a game that a lot of people love. They'll probably have a lot of design elements in it. MCDM is going to probably be the big one, and that is more than a year out. Um, I think everyone else will keep uh, uh, publishing cool stuff. Um, I think the OSR is going to continue to soar with things like Dolman Wood, um, maybe Mothership, that you know really show how expansive the uh, movement is and how great and cool of things they're doing.
0: And uh, as usual, uh, we have a lot of creatives uh, making games, indie designers and those that support the whole creation of the products and games that we love. Uh, and we lost uh, a number of people. Uh, we're just going to highlight a few of them. Um, Russ Nicholson. Yeah, he
1: was a very notable artist. You may not know his name, but you'd know his work. Uh, he was in the UK field. He did this beautiful, textured, dense artwork. You probably saw it in the Fiend Folio. A lot of the slot eye, possibly all the slot eye, were his original work. The Eye of Fear and Flame. Um, He did a lot of the uh, British editions, at least, of the uh, um, fighting fantasy books. I I really feel like he um, kind of set the tone for almost all of uh, what British artwork, British fantasy artwork, looked like in our field early on.
0: And um, Peter L. Rice?
1: Yeah, Peter L. Rice was uh, one of the Companions, uh, role-playing company you probably haven't heard of today. But in the 80s, they were producing... Uh, supplements uh, for d and d without being named for d and d as was common at the time that were kind of amazing for their uh, focus on plots and story and real society is- societal issues. They, you know, were about drugs and prostitution and crime and other things that you know weren't in the average dungeon, but were approached as serious issues. they, i'm sorry that they kind of disappeared after the companions closed up and um, the lost histories actually has a history on them and i was able to talk to to peter a few times before he passed and so hopefully we at least have a little bit recorded now even if none of the books have been in print for decades and jonathan m thompson yeah he was the founder of battlefield publishing i'm not familiar with most of his work Uh, you know he was a small indie I think his kind of biggest, uh, latter day, uh, work was on a Robotech role-playing game, um, that came out in 2019 or so, but he also, uh, was one of the de- prime designers on prime directive D 20, which is of course a, you know, not star Trek, but Starfleet universe, uh, RPG in the D 20 system. He passed very young and unexpectedly of, you know, uh, Infection that he got in his arm, which was pretty shocking to a lot of people, I think.
0: And Darren Watts? Yeah,
1: Darren Watts was one of the defenders of justice who were the people that took over uh, the hero system in the 2000s and did great things with it. You know, it was, I think, the most prolific and uh, uh, productive period ever for Hero Games. A lot of that was uh, Darren's partner, Stephen Long, who uh, would write a million words a year. And uh, that is not exaggeration. He would he would write a million words a year. Um, but Darren, besides being the uh, co-founder of that, also was a real force on the convention circuit, um, you know, really mentoring people and helping them and working with them. And he was very gravely missed when he passed.
0: And uh, Tiwin Woodruff. Yeah, she was a
1: very notable pioneer uh, for uh, women in game design, working for White Wolf and Wizards, and later co-founding Lone Shark Games. And uh, uh, she was doing it before there were many women in the field.
0: And uh, Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have more listed uh, in uh, the in memoriam at the end. But uh, I just want to uh, say, uh, Shannon, uh, thank you for joining us again and imparting the wisdom that you've built up over a lifetime of studying the history of role-playing games and why we love them. Uh, so just thank you very much for coming on the show again.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: Always great talking with you. And uh, for those at home, uh, I just want to wish you a safe and happy holidays and a great new year and uh, and, uh, and Indie Games is, uh, you know, the highlight of the channel uh, and kind of what we strive for. And I really appreciate you being on the journey of uh, sharing all these uh, creative minds and uh, designs that uh, we'd love to play. So uh, thank you for joining us and uh, much appreciated. And uh, as we uh, play off uh, some of those that we lost this year, uh, just remember that... Uh, There's a lot of uh, personalities and people that have uh, shared their passions with us, and uh, it's uh, sad that we've lost them.
1: And so tell the designers that are still around how much you like their work.
0: Exactly.